My name is Shub Saran, and this is a podcast series where I explore the life of musicians on and off stage. I'm making this series to ask what it means to be a musician today in the hopes that I can better understand what we do and why we choose to do it. My guest today is someone who I deeply admire, one of the most hardworking people I know who embodies the bridge between art and science. My name is Dr. Tyreek Jackson. I'm an assistant professor of music and neuroscience at St. John's University. He's a musician and a neuroscientist, and he's really good at being both. Today, I'm going to be talking to Tyreek about his journey to becoming a musician and a scientist, his research about improvisation and creativity, and how using the findings from his research, we can practice how to be better improvisers. So I want to begin by talking about your early life, before your degrees and your doctorate. You studied engineering at the University of Rochester, right? Correct. correct. Can you talk about that? and how you're now a doctor. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, even going back, I had played in, you know, like metal bands and rock bands outside of high school. But I was really also interested in math and science. So I went to the University of Rochester. I studied mechanical engineering there. And uh, when it came time to, you know, graduate and go on and do internships like a lot of my peers were I had a little bit of a, a crisis where music was equally as important to me as math and science and engineering and so I made a rash decision as young <laughs> folks do and decided I was going to go to music school to the <laughs> displeasure of my parents who thought I was going to go and be an engineer and uh, make lots of money and so on and so forth. Tariq then went out to study at the Berklee College of Music as a bass player and a jazz composer. He also happens to be a very good guitar player, and both of us played double guitar together in Adam Neely's jazz school. So what did music school look like after engineering? I was doing all this amazing musical stuff with so many amazing folks. And almost the, the, the inverse of what happened in for my first undergrad happened at Berkeley. I felt this like real intense desire to go back into science. What did you do right after Berkeley then? And how did you make that switch? After graduating Berkeley, I spent a couple of years in Boston, you know, just playing and just biding my time trying to figure out like what that path would look like. And then the opportunity came up to apply for this uh, interdisciplinary doctorate at Columbia. So I applied once again, just kind of on a whim. I had designed this like, in retrospect, this like very silly kind of theory about music composition and math. What was that theory? It, it is some stupid. It's called like uh, metamusematics or something like <laughs> that. And the idea was to like take some basic principles of calculus, you know, just like the mathematics of change and apply them to like composition. Little did I know that there were folks at Columbia and elsewhere that were actually working on 
some things like that. At the doctorate program in Colombia, Tariq started working in a lab with his collaborators, Paul Scheide, and fellow hybrid working musician slash neuroscientist, Andrew Goldman. We wanted to find that space where we can speak to what working musicians do and some of the experiences that they have in looking at different networks and how they interact while folks are playing music. And where are you now? Now I'm at St. John's University and I'm working on things related to control and flexibility and improvisation. So behind you, I see a giant Marshall half stack and a whole <laughs> row of guitars and basses. Do you consider yourself a musician first or a scientist first? Man, it, it's a tough question. They both, to me, hold equal weight. I can't put one above the other. So for me, it, it just is, I am a musician scientist, <laughs> if you want to call it that. No, I love that because it's such a refreshing thing to hear. I grew up believing that musicians could only be musicians. And they were musicians because they couldn't do anything else in life. But you are an example of someone who I really aspire to be. You're not just one thing, but you embody this hybridity. And it's reflected really well in your work. Right on. And I mean, it actually makes me think of you and what you're doing with this podcast and what you're doing with your music. And it's not like you're making this grand gesture to speak to one thing or other. It's just who you are is many things. And that comes out in the music. There are a lot of similarities because for me, it's not about the grand gestures. It's about, you know, just the acknowledgement of where I've come from and the experiences that I have in both of these fields. And then just in earnest, trying to find a way to speak to both of those experiences. So how does your work in creativity and the work in improvisation tie in together? Does creativity have an inherent improvisational aspect to it? Or are they just two separate things? That's the question. I mean, you know, part of the impetus for starting this sort of track to my research is to look at a precisely that question, because there has been some debate as to to what degree creativity and improvisation correlate, or are they the same thing, or are they distinct processes? When we improvise in a musical space, there are many different kinds of improvisation, and they all have their own conventions and constraints. In most cases, what passes for like, you know, more creativity or less creativity is what we call like convergent or divergent thinking. In psychology, convergent thinking involves reaching one well-defined solution to a problem. Divergent thinking is the opposite of that and is said to involve more creativity where you generate many ideas and multiple solutions to a problem. So you take one object and uh, you come up with all these different ways that you can use the object, right? So in most cases, that's how we measure creativity. And what does that tell us about how creative musical improv is? I mean, I think intuitively we can say that there is a degree of creativity in improvisation, right? There has to be. So the idea is to look at, you know, when folks improvise, 
and improvising all these sort of changing environments, can we find a way to look at how creative they're being? These changing musical environments, as Tyreek said, are things like playing over a song at a fast tempo, or playing a slow ballad, or even stylistic things like something more jazzy, or something more bluesy, or a rock song. The idea is to look at, you know, is there a way to say that, you know, maybe that's more creative in this environment versus another environment. How are you then actually measuring the creativity? And what part of the brain are you looking at to see if certain musical environments are more or less creative? We have what's called the alpha wave, which is a, a brain wave that oscillates you know, somewhere between 8 and 13 hertz. Um, and I'm looking at a division of the alpha wave from 10 to 12 hertz, and it kind of correlates with certain cognitive activities that we have in the past associated with you know, more creativity or less creativity. The idea is, well, can we take this methodology that has been used in the past, can we apply it to improvisation? So what do these creativity measuring methods look like in a musical context? We've taken what is classically referred to as like a Stroop task and modified it for, for music. So, you know, in a, in a Stroop task, you kind of, you get words and you're, Sometimes like the words are colored words and like sometimes your task is to, you know, respond to the color of the word. So the word might be green, but the letters might spell out red and your task might be to tell the researchers what the letters spell out versus what the color of the word is. So we did a musical version of that. The musical version of a Stroop task is what Tyreek did in his 2018 paper where they took musicians from a range of improv experience, zero experience to expert improvisers, and gave them non-improv tasks, which was to listen to a chord progression like a 2-5-1, where the middle chord was either in root position, an inversion, or a functionally different chord, like a four chord in root position or inversion. And the only thing the participants had to do was to hit a button when they heard something was different from 251. What we found was that the folks with more improv experience, they heard or responded to things that were more global in nature, right? So they responded to the functional difference, like the four chord versus the five chord. And the folks who didn't have as much improv experience, they responded equally to the four chord being in an inversion and the five chord. So anytime anything was different, the musicians without improv experience responded. But for the musicians who had a lot of improv experience, they responded mostly just to the functional difference, a four chord instead of a five chord, regardless of its inversion. What that said to me was that there's this idea that like folks with improv experience don't really concern themselves with like inversions, right? It's more a matter of convenience. You play, we play substitutions all the time, you know, in jazz improv. And it's really just a matter of like finding the chord that fits in that moment. Whereas in other styles of music, you know, inversions really really matter, right? Inversions are important to the structural integrity 
of a piece of music. So you pay attention to them in a different way than you do in improvisatory music. So what that said to me is improvisers maybe think a little bit more globally or maybe with more of a broadness to it. So coming back to the levels of creativity in improvisation, in your current research, you talk about these two mental states, two neural networks in the brain, the default mode network and the executive control network, and how more connectivity between them results in more creativity. So what is that first network, the default mode network, responsible for? It's kind of this catch-all term for the mental state and the regions associated with this mental state where you you don't necessarily have a task. And this leads to just kind of like mind wandering, sometimes rumination, daydreaming, that kind of thing. And how about the second mental state, the executive control network? It's mainly centered around sort of monitoring ongoing actions, current actions, sometimes leading to adding to them or canceling them. So these two networks routinely show up and they're kind of orthogonal to one another. So like you deactivate the default mode uh, and activate the frontal parietal while you're improvising. Could you then say that the oscillation between these two networks kind of means that you're being more creative the more movement there is back and forth? My belief is that it's not as cut and dry. It's not as like binary as that. When you're improvising, you shift from these two networks constantly. Like you said, it's this oscillation between the two. There are times when you kind of let go and you're prone to play things that you may, may have rehearsed, play all these licks and things like that. That's the default mode network. And there are times when you're tuned in and you're reacting to the band, or you're reacting to the crowd, or you're reacting to yourself, right? And that's that sort of executive control where you're kind of, you know, very consciously thinking about what it is that you're playing. And then, you know, based on that, based on the value of the notes that you're playing, you might do something with them or do something else, right? So then what separates experienced improvisers from less experienced ones? What's happening in the brain when you've trained yourself to be able to go back and forth between these two mental states? The more expertise you have, the more you're able to just kind of seamlessly flow through these states, right? There are a couple of folks like, uh, I'm just thinking of like David Rosen, who has done some really interesting and innovative work where he gives like novice improvisers a stimulation, a shock to their frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is where the executive control networks are located. So David Rosen in his study was stimulating the networks that are responsible for that more attuned state of mind where you're really paying attention and monitoring your environment. When the researchers applied that shock to the frontal lobe, they found that the less experienced and novice improvisers saw an increase in the quality of their performance and improvisation. But interestingly, 
for expert improvisers, that boost to the frontal lobe didn't do much for them. Because experts have already kind of built up the ability and the capacity to kind of move into a more controlled state and move away from that control as well. And less experienced improvisers who haven't built up that ability to move back and forth between control and flexibility benefited from the boost. How would you then explain this oscillation, this moving back and forth between the two states in a real life improv context? All of my favorite improvisers, right? I'm thinking of uh, uh, Michael Landau or Chick Corea or um, Wayne Shorter. They all exhibit this kind of ability to just be very present in the moment and reacting almost instantaneously to what's happening around them, but then also completely break away from that and just get into their own universe and play with this sort of effortless flow. It's almost like kind of turning off that little thing in your mind that says like, oh, don't play that. Don't play that. Play this, right? And with the ability to turn it on when you need it, right? And this could be something like listening to how the audience is reacting and then changing your playing based off of that. Or if the drummer changes something or implies a rhythm, grabbing that in your improv and building off of that, and then going right back into getting lost in the music again. Let's say you're learning how to play over a jazz standard, and you really want to nail the specific 2-5-1 lick. Are you trying to spend more time in the executive control network, deliberately practicing this one lick in a very attentive and aware way? And then on the other hand, if you're someone who knows the blues scale up and down, but you just want to be more free while playing it over a blues backing track, are you then trying to spend more time in the default mode network? where things are more flexible. That's the idea. What you're describing is like, you know, someone who's trying to practice a lick. That should be deliberate. That should be something where you're trying to control more of the variables in the environment and then kind of evaluate what you play and see if it worked over that particular progression or not. And then moving to a space where you have someone who is then trying to apply those skills to like a blues backing track. Yeah, it's about like kind of the exercise of letting go of that, that constant monitoring. But it's also about like the practice of moving between those two. Personally, I was not a great improviser at all when I first started playing jazz and jazz adjacent music in music school. I grew up playing rock and punk rock songs and spent very little time trying to play solos or improvise over them. And anytime I was thrown into improvising situations, my playing would involve some combination of minor pentatonic noodling and random scale patterns I had picked up along the way. And I think what was happening was that I wasn't going back and forth, or at least I didn't have the ability to go back and forth between these two states. I either knew how to play the very specific lick in the very specific controlled context, or I knew how to wander aimlessly in a key. 
So how do we teach improv expertise so that we can train students' brains to strengthen those neural connections? Can knowing some of this stuff make us better improvisers? I think this could be something that could help a lot of folks who are, you know, get into these ruts, you know, students who get into these ruts with improvising where, let's say they have the chord skill, they know what the chord skill is, they know how to play the chord skill up and down, but when it comes to improvising, things kind of fall apart because they don't necessarily have a skill set of moving from this more deliberate sort of practice space to this more... I guess, free-flowing or flexible application space. I've had many students in the past. I've been one of these students myself. You go to a jam or something like that, and then it's your turn to improvise over something, and it's like you're a deer in the headlights. You start playing just the scale up and down or something like that. And then you may miss a note, and everything that you play from then on is just kind of like altered. Maybe like you know your time is off or something like that. Because the practice of like snapping back into this more controlled space isn't there. And what's an example of an exercise that demonstrates that practice of going back and forth between these two states? It could be something like giving them a tag that they have to play, you know, a line that they have to play every now and again. Just to reorient themselves around a more controlled space and see the difference between this controlled thing that they have to do and this more flexible thing that they have to do. Outside of music, do we see these same neural patterns in other creative things that we do or other tasks that involve improvising? There have been studies where some researchers have looked at lyrical improv- uh, improvisers, right? People who freestyle. The same regions that are active in lyrical improvisation are the same regions that are active in musical improvisations, the same regions that are active when doing more creative moves in soccer, are the same regions that are active in musical improvisation. We've been speaking our entire lives. We have these things that we may say um, with a certain degree of routine, but in many cases, we go out, we go... Um, and interact with folks that we may not know very well, we're improvising. If we see the kind of basic structure for what it is, it's just us trying to negotiate a dynamic space. This is something I've talked about in other episodes of this podcast, and it's something that plagues me all the time. And it's that being a musician is an inherently selfish thing. Sometimes I can't help but think that sitting alone in a practice room learning how to be a better improviser doesn't really do that much for the world. But in listening to Tyreek and reading his research, my pursuit in trying to be a better musician feels a little less one-dimensional. The act of improvising in music at the neural level is as human as it is to speak or communicate with people. Maybe all those hours we spend in that room alone running through scale patterns isn't so that we can play the most burning guitar solo, But it's so that when we do leave that room and go out into the world, we're that much better at communicating and creating human connections with the people we're making music with and the people we make music for. There's all these theories about like what creativity 
is. And there's all this literature about how creativity is measured. But when it comes to improvisation, when it comes to music improvisation, we don't have strong evidence for it. And I think if we look at some of these factors, right, and given our knowledge of, you know, what these networks are, what these neural networks are, I think we can come to, you know, a, a little bit better of an understanding of the process and then take that and pay it forward in, you know, how we speak about improvisation or how we teach improvisation or even how we communicate on the bandstand with one another. Mm -hmm.